Part Third, Chapter Nine, Part One of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Carpenter. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad, Part Third, The Lighthouse, Chapter Nine, Part One. Distracted between doubts and hopes. Dismayed by the sound of bells pealing out the arrival of Pedrito Montero, Sotillo had spent the morning in battling with his thoughts, a contest to which he was unequal from the vacuity of his mind and the violence of his passions. Disappointment, greed, anger, and fear made a tumult in the colonel's breast louder than the din of bells in the town. Nothing he had planned had come to pass. Neither Sulaco nor the silver of the mine had fallen into his hands. He had performed no military exploit to secure his position, and had obtained no enormous booty to make off with. Pedrito Montero, either as friend or foe, filled him with dread. The sound of bells maddened him. Imagining at first that he might be attacked at once, he had made his battalion stand to arms on the shore. He had walked to and fro all the length of the room, stopping sometimes to gnaw the fingertips of his right hand with a lurid sideways glare fixed on the floor. Then, with a sullen, repelling glance all round, he would resume his tramping in savage aloofness. His hat, horsewhip, sword, and revolver were lying on the table. His officers, crowding the window, giving the view of the town gate, disputed amongst themselves the use of his field-glass, bought last year on long credit from Manzani. It passed from hand to hand, and the possessor, for the time being, was besieged by anxious inquiries. "'There is nothing! There is nothing to see!' he would repeat impatiently. There was nothing and when the picket in the bushes near the Casaviola had been ordered to fall back upon the main body, no stir of life appeared on the stretch of dusty and arid land between the town and the waters of the port. But late in the afternoon a horseman issuing from the gate was made out riding up fearlessly. It was an emissary from Senor Fuentes. Being all alone, he was allowed to come on. Dismounting at the great door, he greeted the silent bystanders with cheery impudence, and begged to be taken up at once to the muy valiente colonel. Senor Fuentes, on entering upon his functions of jefe politico, had turned his diplomatic abilities to getting hold of the harbor as well as of the mine. The man he pitched upon to negotiate with Sotillo was a notary public, whom the revolution had found languishing in the common jail on a charge of forging documents. Liberated by the mob, along with the other victims of Blanco tyranny, he had hastened to offer his services to the new government. He set out determined to display much zeal and eloquence in trying to induce Sotillo to come into town alone for a conference with Pedrito Montero. Nothing was further from the colonel's intentions. The mere fleeting idea of trusting himself into the famous Pedrito's hands had made him feel unwell several times. It was out of the question. It was madness. And to put himself in open hostility was madness, too. It would render impossible a systematic search for that treasure for that wealth of silver which he seemed to feel somewhere about, to scent somewhere near. But where, where, heavens, where? Oh, why had he allowed that doctor to go, imbecile that he was? But no, it was the only right course, he reflected distractedly, while the messenger waited downstairs, chatting agreeably to the officers. It was in that scoundrelly doctor's true interest to return with positive information. But what if anything stopped him? A general prohibition to leave the town, for instance there would be patrols. The colonel, seizing his head in his hands, turned in his tracks as if struck with vertigo. A flash of craven inspiration suggested to him an expedient not unknown to European statesmen when they wished to delay a difficult negotiation. Booted and spurred, he scrambled into the hammock with undignified haste. His handsome face had turned yellow with the strain of weighty cares. The ridge of his shapely nose had grown sharp. 
The audacious nostrils appeared mean and pinched. The velvety, caressing glance of his fine eyes seemed dead and even decomposed. For these almond-shaped, languishing orbs had become inappropriately bloodshot with much sinister sleeplessness. He addressed the surprised envoy of Senor Fuentes in a deadened, exhausted voice. It came pathetically feeble from under a pile of ponchos, which buried his elegant person right up to the black moustaches, uncurled, pendant, in sign of bodily prostration and mental incapacity. Fever, fever, a heavy fever, had overtaken the muy valiente colonel. A wavering wildness of expression caused by the passing spasms of slight colic, which had declared itself suddenly, and the rattling teeth of repressed panic, had a genuineness which impressed the envoy. It was a cold fit. The colonel explained that he was unable to think, to listen, to speak. With an appearance of superhuman effort, the colonel gasped out that he was not in a state to return a suitable reply, or to execute any of his excellency's orders. But to-morrow, to-morrow, ah, to-morrow, let his excellency Don Pedro be without uneasiness. The brave Esmeralda regiment held the harbour, held, and closing his eyes, he rolled his aching head like a half-delirious invalid under the inquisitive stare of the envoy, who was obliged to bend down over the hammock in order to catch the painful and broken accents. Meantime, Colonel Sotillo trusted that His Excellency's humanity would permit the doctor, the English doctor, to come out of town with his case of foreign remedies to attend upon him. He begged anxiously his worship, the caballero now present, for the grace of looking in as he passed the Casa Gould, and informing the English doctor, who was probably there, that his services were immediately required by Colonel Sotillo, lying ill of the fever in the custom-house. Immediately, most urgently required, awaited with extreme impatience, a thousand thanks. He closed his eyes wearily and would not open them again, lying perfectly still, deaf, dumb, insensible, overcome, vanquished, crushed, annihilated by the fell disease. But as soon as the doctor had shut after him the door of the landing, the colonel leaped out with a fling of both feet in an avalanche of woolen coverings. His spurs having become entangled in a perfect welter of ponchos, he nearly pitched on his head, and did not recover his balance till the middle of the room. Concealed behind the half-closed jalousies, he listened to what went on below. The envoy had already mounted, and turning to the morose officers occupying the great doorway, took off his hat formally. Caballeros, he said, in a very loud tone, allow me to recommend you to take care of your colonel. It has done me much honour and gratification to have seen you all, a fine body of men, exercising the soldierly virtue of patience in this exposed situation where there is much sun and no water to speak of, while the town full of wine and feminine charms is ready to embrace you for the brave men you are. Caballeros, I have the honour to salute you. There will be much dancing to-night in Sulaco. Good-bye. But he reined in his horse and inclined his head sideways on seeing the old major step out, very tall and meagre, in a straight narrow coat coming down to his ankles, as it were the casing of the regimental colours rolled round their staff. The intelligent old warrior, after enunciating in a dogmatic tone the general proposition that the world was full of traitors, went on pronouncing deliberately a panegyric upon Sotillo. He ascribed to him with leisurely emphasis every virtue under heaven, summing it all up in an absurd colloquialism current amongst the lower class of Occidentals, especially about Esmeralda. And, he concluded with a sudden rise in the voice, a man of many teeth, hombre de muchos dientes. Si, señor, as to us, he pursued, portentous and impressive, your worship is beholding the finest body of officers in the Republic, men unequalled for valor and sagacity, y hombres de muchos dientes. What, all of them? inquired the disreputable envoy of Senor Fuentes, with a faint derisive smile. Todos, si, senor, 
the major affirmed gravely with conviction men of many teeth the other wheeled his horse to face the portal resembling the high gate of a dismal barn he raised himself in his stirrups and extended one arm he was a facetious scoundrel entertaining for these stupid occidentals a feeling of great scorn natural in a native from the central provinces the folly of esmeraldians especially aroused his amused contempt he began an oration upon pedro montero keeping a solemn countenance he flourished his hand as if introducing him to their notice and when he saw every face set all the eyes fixed upon his lips he began to shout a sort of catalogue of perfections generous valorous affable profound he snatched off his hat enthusiastically a statesman an invincible chief of partisans he dropped his voice startlingly to a deep hollow note and a dentist he was off instantly at a smart walk the rigid straddle of his legs the turned-out feet the stiff back the rakish slant of the sombrero above the square motionless set of the shoulders expressing an infinite awe-inspiring impudence upstairs behind the jealousies sotillo did not move for a long time the audacity of the fellow appalled him what were his officers saying below they were saying nothing complete silence he quaked it was not thus that he had imagined himself at that state of the expedition. He had seen himself triumphant, unquestioned, appeased, the idol of the soldiers, weighing in secret complacency the agreeable alternatives of power and wealth open to his choice. Alas, how different! Distracted, restless, supine, burning with fury or frozen with terror, he felt a dread as fathomless as the sea creep upon him from every side. That rogue of a doctor had to come out with his information. That was clear it would be of no use to him alone he could do nothing with it malediction the doctor would never come out he was probably under arrest already shut up together with don carlos he laughed aloud insanely <laughs> it was pedrito montero who would get the information <laughs> and the silver <laughs> all at once in the midst of the laugh he became motionless and silent as if turned to stone he too had a prisoner a prisoner who must, must know the real truth. He would have to be made to speak. And Sotillo, who all that time had not quite forgotten Hirsch, felt an inexplicable reluctance at the notion of proceeding to extremities. He felt a reluctance, part of that unfathomable dread that crept on all sides upon him. He remembered reluctantly, too, the dilated eyes of the hide merchant, his contortions, his loud sobs and protestations. It was not compassion or even mere nervous sensibility. The fact was that Sotillo did never for a moment believe his story. He could not believe it. Nobody could believe such nonsense. Yet those accents of despairing truth impressed him disagreeably. They made him feel sick, and he suspected also that the man might have gone mad with fear. A lunatic is a hopeless subject. Bah! A pretense. Nothing but a pretense. He would know how to deal with that. He was working himself up to the right pitch of ferocity. His fine eyes squinted slightly. He clapped his hands. A barefooted orderly appeared noiselessly, a corporal, with his bayonet hanging on his thigh and the stick in his hand. The colonel gave his orders, and presently the miserable Hirsch, pushed in by several soldiers, found him frowning awfully in a broad armchair, hat on head, knees wide apart, arms akimbo, masterful, imposing, irresistible, haughty, sublime, terrible. Hirsch, with his arms tied behind his back, had been bundled violently into one of the smaller rooms. For many hours he remained apparently forgotten, stretched lifelessly on the floor. From that solitude, full of despair and terror, he was torn out brutally with kicks and blows, passive, sunk in hebitude. 
He listened to threats and admonitions, and afterwards made his usual answers to questions, with his chin sunk on his breast, his hands tied behind his back, swaying a little in front of Sotillo, and never looking up. When he was forced to hold up his head, by means of a bayonet point prodding him under the chin, his eyes had a vacant, trance-like stare, and drops of perspiration as big as peas were seen hailing down the dirt, bruises, and scratches of his white face. Then they stopped suddenly. Sotillo looked at him in silence. "'Will you depart from your obstinacy, you rogue?' he asked. Already a rope whose one end was fastened to Senor Hirsch's wrists had been thrown over a beam, and three soldiers held the other end, waiting. He made no answer. His heavy lower lip hung stupidly. Sotillo made a sign. Hirsch was jerked up off his feet, and a yell of despair and agony burst out in the room, filled the passage of the great buildings, rent the air outside, caused every soldier of the camp along the shore to look up at the windows, started some of the officers in the hall babbling excitedly with shining eyes. Others, setting their lips, looked gloomily at the floor. Sotillo, followed by the soldiers, had left the room. The sentry on the landing presented arms. Hirsch went on screaming, all alone behind the half-closed jalousies, while the sunshine, reflected from the water of the harbour, made an ever-running ripple of light high up on the wall. He screamed with uplifted eyebrows and a wide-open mouth, incredibly wide, black, enormous, full of teeth, comical. In the still burning air of the windless afternoon he made the waves of his agony travel as far as the OSN Company's offices. Captain Mitchell, on the balcony, trying to make out what went on generally, had heard him faintly but distinctly, and the feeble and appalling sound lingered in his ears after he had retreated indoors with blanched cheeks. He had been driven off the balcony several times during that afternoon. Sotillo, irritable, moody, walked restlessly about, held consultations with his officers, gave contradictory orders in this shrill clamour pervading the whole empty edifice. Sometimes there would be long and awful silences. Several times he had entered the torture chamber where his sword, horsewhip, revolver, and field glass were lying on the table to ask with forced calmness, Will you speak the truth now? No. I can wait. But he could not afford to wait much longer. That was just it. Every time he went in and came out with a slam of the door, the sentry on the landing presented arms and got in return a black, venomous, unsteady glance, which in reality saw nothing at all, being merely the reflection of the soul within, a soul of gloomy hatred, irresolution, avarice, and fury. The sun had set when he went in once more. A soldier carried in two lighted candles and slunk out, shutting the door without noise. "'Speak, thou Jewish child of the devil! The silver!' The silver, I say, where is it? Where have you foreign rogues hidden it? Confess, or... A slight quiver passed up the taut rope from the racked limbs, but the body of Senor Hirsch, enterprising businessman from Esmeralda, hung under the heavy beam, perpendicular and silent, facing the colonel awfully. The inflow of the night air, cooled by the snows of the Sierra, spread gradually a delicious freshness through the close heat of the room. Speak, thief, scoundrel, picaro, or... Sotillo had seized the riding-whip, and stood with his arm lifted up. For a word, for one little word, he felt he would have knelt, cringed, groveled on the floor, before the drowsy, conscious stare of those fixed eyeballs, starting out of the grimy, disheveled head that drooped very still with its mouth closed askew. The colonel ground his teeth with rage, and struck. The rope vibrated leisurely to the blow, like the long string of a pendulum starting from a rest. But no swinging motion was imparted to the body of Senor Hirsch, the well-known hide-merchant on the coast. With a convulsive effort of the twisted arms, it leaped up a few inches, curling upon itself like a fish on the end of a line. Senor Hirsch's head was flung back on his straining throat. His chin trembled. 
For a moment the rattle of his chattering teeth pervaded the vast shadowy room, where the candles made a patch of light round the two flames burning side by side. And as Sotillo, staying his raised hand, waited for him to speak, with the sudden flash of a grin and straining forward of the wrenched shoulders, he spat violently into his face. The uplifted whip fell, and the colonel sprang back with a low cry of dismay, as if aspersed by a jet of deadly venom. Quick as thought, he snatched up his revolver and fired twice. The report and the concussion of the shots seemed to throw him at once from ungovernable rage into idiotic stupor. He stood with drooping jaw and stony eyes. What had he done? Sangre de Dios! What had he done? What had he done? He was basely appalled at his impulsive act, sealing forever these lips from which so much was to be extorted. What could he say? How could he explain? Ideas of headlong flight somewhere, anywhere, passed through his mind. Even the craven and absurd notion of hiding under the table occurred to his cowardice. It was too late. His officers had rushed in tumultuously, in a great clatter of scabbards, clamoring with astonishment and wonder. But since they did not immediately proceed to plunge their swords into his breast, the brazen side of his character asserted itself. Passing the sleeve of his uniform over his face, he pulled himself together. His truculent glance turned slowly here and there, checked the noise where it fell and the stiff body of the late Senor Hirsch, merchant, after swaying imperceptibly, made a half-turn, and came to a rest in the midst of awed murmurs and uneasy shuffling. A voice remarked loudly, Behold a man who will never speak again! And another from the back row of faces, timid and pressing, cried out, Why did you kill him, mi colonel? Because he has confessed everything, answered Sotillo, with the hardihood of desperation. He felt himself cornered. He brazened it out on the strength of his reputation with very fair success. His hearers thought him very capable of such an act. They were disposed to believe his flattering tale. There is no credulity so eager and blind as the credulity of covetousness, which, in its universal extent, measures the moral misery and the intellectual destitution of mankind. Ah, he had confessed everything. This fractious Jew, this bribon. Good, then he was no longer wanted. A sudden dense guffaw was heard from the senior captain, a big-headed man with little round eyes and monstrously fat cheeks which never moved. The old major, tall and fantastically ragged like a scarecrow, walked round the body of the late Senor Hirsch, muttering to himself with ineffable complacency that, like this, there was no need to guard against any future treacheries of that scoundrel. The others stared, shifting from foot to foot, and whispering short remarks to each other. Sotillo buckled on his sword, and gave curt, peremptory orders to hasten the retirement decided upon in the afternoon. Sinister, impressive, his sombrero pulled right down upon his eyes, he marched first through the door, in such disorder of mind, that he forgot utterly to provide for Dr. Monaghan's possible return. As the officers trooped out after him, one or two looked back hastily at the late Senor Hirsch, merchant from Esmeralda, left swinging rigidly at rest, alone with the two burning candles. In the emptiness of the room, the burly shadow of head and shoulders on the wall had an air of life. Below, the troops fell in silently and moved off by companies without drum or trumpet. The old scarecrow major commanded the rear guard, but the party he left behind, with orders to fire the custom-house and burn the carcass of the treacherous Jew where it hung, failed somehow in their haste to set the staircase properly alight. The body of the late Seigneur Hirsch dwelt alone for a time in the dismal solitude of the unfinished building resounding weirdly with sudden slams and clicks of doors and latches, with rustling scurries of torn papers, and the tremulous sighs that at each gust of wind passed under the high roof. The light of the two candles burning before the perpendicular and breathless immobility of the late Senor Hirsch threw a gleam afar over land and water, like a signal in the night. 
he remained to startle Nostromo by his presence and to puzzle Dr. Monaghan by the mystery of his atrocious end. But why shot? the doctor again asked himself, audibly. This time he was answered by a dry laugh from Nostromo. You seemed much concerned at the very natural thing, Senor Doctor. I wonder why. It is very likely that before long we shall all get shot one after another, if not by Sotillo, then by Pedrito, or Fuentes, or Gamacho. And we may even get the estrapade, too. Or worse, quien sabe, with your pretty tale of the silver you put into Sotillo's head. It was in his head already, the doctor protested. I only... Yes, and you only nailed it there, so that the devil himself... That is precisely what I meant to do, caught up the doctor. That is what you meant to do. Bueno, it is as I say, you are a dangerous man. Their voices, which without rising had been growing quarrelsome, ceased suddenly. The late Senor Hirsch, erect and shadowy against the stars, seemed to be waiting, attentive, in impartial silence. But Dr. Monaghan had no mind to quarrel with Nostromo. At this supremely critical point of Sulaco's fortunes, it was borne upon him at last that this man was really indispensable, more indispensable than ever the infatuation of Captain Mitchell, his proud discoverer, could conceive. Far beyond what Decoud's best dry raillery about my illustrious friend, the unique Capataz de Cargadores, had ever intended, the fellow was unique. He was not one in a thousand. He was absolutely the only one. The doctor surrendered. There was something in the genius of that Genoese seaman which dominated the destinies of great enterprises and of many people, the fortunes of Charles Gould, the fate of an admirable woman. At this last thought the doctor had to clear his throat before he could speak. In a completely changed tone he pointed out to the Capataz that, to begin with, he personally ran no great risk. As far as everybody knew, he was dead. It was an enormous advantage. He had only to keep out of sight in the Casa Viola, where the old Garibaldino was known to be alone with his dead wife. The servants had all run away. No one would think of searching for him there, or anywhere else on earth, for that matter. That would be very true, Nostromo spoke up bitterly, if I had not met you. For a time the doctor kept silent. Do you mean to say that you think I may give you away? he asked in an unsteady voice. Why, why should I do that? What do I know? Why not? To gain a day, perhaps. It would take Sotillo a day to give me the estrapade, and Try some things, perhaps, before he puts a bullet through my heart, as he did to that poor wretch here. Why not? The doctor swallowed with difficulty. His throat had gone dry in a moment. It was not from indignation. The doctor, pathetically enough, believed that he had forfeited the right to be indignant with anyone for anything. It was simple dread. Had the fellow heard his story by some chance? If so, there was an end of his usefulness in that direction. The indispensable man escaped his influence, because of that indelible blot which made him fit for dirty work. A feeling as of sickness came upon the doctor. He would have given anything to know, but he dared not clear up the point. The fanaticism of his devotion, fed on the sense of his abasement, hardened his heart in sadness and scorn. Why not, indeed, he re-echoed sardonically. Then the safe thing for you to do is kill me on the spot. I would defend myself, but you may just as well know I am going about unarmed. Por Dios, said the capataz passionately. You fine people are all alike, all dangerous, all betrayers of the poor who are your dogs. You do not understand, began the doctor slowly. I understand you all, cried the other with a violent movement, as shadowy to the doctor's eyes as the persistent immobility of the late Senor Hirsch. A poor man amongst you has got to look after himself. I say that you do not care for those that serve you. Look at me. After all these years, suddenly here I find myself like one of these curs that barks outside the walls. 
without a kennel or dry bone for my teeth. Caramba! But he relented with a contemptuous fairness. Of course, he went on quietly, I do not suppose that you would hasten to give me up to Sotillo, for example. It is not that. It is that I am nothing. Suddenly he swung his arm downwards. Nothing to anyone, he repeated. The doctor breathed freely. Listen, Capataz, he said, stretching out his arm almost affectionately towards Nostromo's shoulder. I am going to tell you a very simple thing. You are safe because you are needed. I would not give you away for any conceivable reason, because I want you. In the dark Nostromo bit his lip. He had heard enough of that. He knew what that meant. No more of that for him. But he had to look after himself now, he thought. And he thought, too, that it would not be prudent to part in anger from his companion. The doctor, admitted to be a great healer, had amongst the populace of Sulaco the reputation of being an evil sort of man. It was based solidly on his personal appearance, which was strange, and on his rough, ironic manner, proofs visible, sensible, and incontrovertible of the doctor's malevolent disposition, and Nostromo was of the people. So he only grunted incredulously. "'You, to speak plainly, are the only man,' the doctor pursued. "'It is in your power to save this town, and everybody, from the destructive rapacity of men who—' "'No, senor,' said Nostromo sullenly. It is not in my power to get the treasure back for you to give up to Sotillo, or Pedrito, or Gamacho. What do I know? Nobody expects the impossible, was the answer. You have said it yourself. Nobody, muttered Nostromo in a gloomy, threatening tone. But Dr. Monaghan, full of hope, disregarded the enigmatic words and the threatening tone. To their eyes, accustomed to obscurity, the late Senor Hirsch, growing more distinct, seemed to have come nearer and the doctor lowered his voice in exposing his scheme as though afraid of being overheard. He was taking the indispensable man into his fullest confidence. Its implied flattery and suggestion of great risks came with a familiar sound to the capataz. His mind, floating in irresolution and discontent, recognized it with bitterness. He understood well that the doctor was anxious to save the Santome mine from annihilation. He would be nothing without it. It was his interest, just as it had been the interest of Senor Decoud, of the Blancos, and of the Europeans, to get his cargadores on their side. His thought became arrested upon Decoud. What would happen to him? End of chapter 9, part 1